0: Turn in your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter number 15. Exodus chapter number 15. Man, what a blessing to be in the house of the Lord. I appreciate our visitors being here. What a blessing to have you here and our home folk as well. As you can hear, I'm battling a little bit of congestion. As you can hear, Brother Kerry and Brother Tim and Brother Jim and pretty much everybody because it's it's November in East Tennessee. Amen. But I covet your prayers this morning and uh, pray for my family um they're not sick, I'm just tired of them, so they're at home. No, they are sick and uh the little ones are getting over it. The little ones always bring sickness into the home cuz the children are gross. And uh they are I love them. I love mine, I love yours, but let's just be honest. They're kind of disgusting. They uh they lick doorknobs and and uh chew on grocery carts handles and all kinds of things and it's a wonder we're not all sicker than we are really to be honest but uh they're they're getting better and uh they're doing much better my wife she is doing some better so you continue to pray for them exodus chapter number 15 and um you know what no turn to ephesians chapter 2 turn to ephesians chapter 2 i was going to preach something but i'm going to preach something different ephesians chapter number two and uh Lord laid this on my heart, I was furiously taking notes down while the singing that good song was being sung, uh, but we're just going to mind the Lord this morning. Ephesians chapter number 2, and let's begin reading in verse number 1. Ephesians chapter number 2, we've been teaching this in our Sunday school class, and I uh, spent a little time there this morning, I believe the Lord has a thought for us today. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1, the Word of God says, and you, now you might say, well who's the you? The you is you and me. Uh, The you is all of us. Amen. Uh, That is a universal you. It's you and it's me. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature The children of wrath, even as others. But God. (laughs) But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Father, we love You this morning. I need the help of the Holy Ghost today. Lord, I need it every day. But oh, how desperate that need is in this hour. I pray that You would stir hearts, speak to hearts, Lord. I, I don't believe You would have changed our direction if there hadn't been a need for it, Lord. And we know that Your direction's the right direction, so we'll happily go along. Whatever You'd have us to say, whatever You'd have us to do. But Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would do His part in softening hearts and speaking to people this morning. And Lord, may You be magnified in everything that's done. You alone can save the sinner. You alone, Lord, can reclaim the backslider. You alone can encourage the discouraged. And so, Father, we're trusting You to accomplish it this morning for Your glory. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. As I said, we've been teaching through the book of Ephesians in our Sunday school class over there, and we typically move at a lightning pace in that class. Uh, no, that's a joke. We, we, go, we go at a slow crawl. Uh, but we have been studying the book of Ephesians for a number of months now. Now, the book of Ephesians... Uh, basically has this as its theme, that the Lord uh, God has uh, displaced our former identity that we had prior to salvation and given us a new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. The uh, sort of heartbeat of the book of Ephesians is found down in uh, verse number 13 and verse number 14. Let me jump over there and I want to read it to you. It says, But now in Christ Jesus ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one. You notice that distinction. Made both two different entities, made them one. And hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Now what was that enmity? What separated these two groups of people? Even the law of commandments contained ordinances. So the Old Testament law, he's abolished that for to make in himself of twain of two one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby." So if you study Ephesians chapter number 1 and chapter number 2, you'll find that the theme is that God has taken that middle wall, the law of commandments that distinguish the way God viewed humanity into two groups, Jews and Gentiles. He has torn down that middle wall of partition and He now views mankind in two categories, but it's not that of Jew and Gentile, rather it is that of saved and of lost. I want you to listen carefully this morning. Every person in this room, you are in one of those two categories. You are either a saved person, meaning you have trusted Christ for salvation, admitted you're a sinner and asked Him to forgive you and save you of your sin, or you have not done that. and You are either saved or lost. And in uh, presenting this thought to us, the Apostle Paul shows all through chapter 1 how that what we have in Jesus Christ, for the Jewish Old Testament believer, what he has in Christ is better than what he had in his Jewish identity under the law. And likewise, for the Gentile, the identity that he has in Christ Jesus is better than what he had under the law of conscience. Under the law of just, well, I'm doing my best and I'm working hard and I'm trying to do what I can. He then begins to deal with this in a more personal sense at the close of chapter 1. He talks about what happened when Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again. He talked about how that changed His relationship to world authorities. It exalted Him above every principality, above every power, above every dominion. He talks about how that changed His relationship to God's people. He says he's made him the head over all things, even the church, which is his body. Uh, and then in verse number one of chapter two, he speaks to the individual. This is what he's talking about. What does the cross of Calvary mean for you? What does it mean for your life? You came this morning for probably a various number of reasons. You might have come because you were invited. You might have come because somebody that you love wanted you to come here. You might have come because you'd be in church somewhere and this happened to be on your way. Or you might have come here because God has led you here and Walridge Baptist Church is your home. I want you to know this morning that when God rolled me out of bed, He had me come here today to tell you that the cross of Calvary has a direct impact on your life. I don't know why you came today. But I'll tell you why God came to this earth and that was to change your life, to transform you and to give you new life in Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Paul is talking about the personal nature of the cross of Calvary. The cross is not just a symbol of religion. It is not just, as, as some would say, a, a crutch whereby people make themselves be, feel better. Uh, but the cross of Calvary is literally the touch point, the flash point between heaven and earth. It is the means whereby God reached down and touched humanity so that He might change us for His glory and for His will. What does Paul deal with concerning this? There are three thoughts in our text this morning, and I'll share them with you, and then we'll be done. In verses 1 through 3, he described our dead condition. You know, it's interesting. Lost people have all sorts of ideas about how God views them. Some of them have the idea that God's angry at them. That's not true. I understand the Bible says He's angry with the wicked every day. Yes, God's righteousness is offended at wicked mankind, but God's not sitting up in heaven brooding and writing down a hit list of people that He hates. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son uh, the fact of the matter is, God is not angry at you, God pities you and He loves you and He cherishes you and He desires for you to know Him. Uh, some lost people have the idea that God is impressed with them, uh, that God looks at the way that they live and He's really wild and odd that they give an attempt at morality the way that they do. Some people believe that uh, they may not be the best around, but hey, at least they're better than that person or better than that person. You ever dawned on you that person might be saying that about you too? If our morality is relative, then what does it all matter anyway? Must be grounded in truth, right? Must be based on something that's fundamental and foundational and immovable in nature. But here's the question I think we ought to be asking. What does God think of us? Not what is our opinion of God, not how do we view other people. What does God say about the lost person? It's interesting. God doesn't say about a lost person that he is immoral. Now, a lost person is immoral but he doesn't say that he is immoral. In fact, I've known saved people that it's a tragedy, but they live more immoral lives than some say lost people that I have known. His problem is not that they are irreligious, his problem isn't that they don't go to church enough and then it can be solved if they just go to church more. Some people think if they go to church enough, God will let them slide into heaven. His problem is not that they've not been baptized, that they don't partake in the Lord's Supper. He's not waiting for them to carry out some pageant or some ordinance to please Him. No, what is God's problem with a lost man? Well, we find it here in our text. The first thing that God says is that a lost person is dead. The Bible uses a word, quicken, and that means to be made alive. doesn't necessarily mean to be made fast. If it did, I'm a saved to save guest, but I sure enough ain't fast. Somebody say amen. Uh, but rather it means to be made alive. Why has He done that? And you as He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You know the problem with the lost person is that they lack the capacity to have a relationship with God. They can do something similar to prayer. They can pantomime prayer uh, as they've seen religious people do, but it's not going to make them uh, have a relationship with God. They can go to church, but it doesn't make them a saved person. Point in fact, a lost person has no ability to change anything about themselves. Why? Because they are dead in their trespasses and sins. Uh, I've preached a lot of funerals in my time, and you've probably attended a lot of them in your time. Uh, and when you go to funeral, they they do a great job of dressing up the body. It's one of the things that the funeral directors do. Uh, They'll go and they'll put makeup on the corpse and they'll put the finest clothes on them and uh, they'll try to dress them up and make them look in such a way as though they're still alive. But at the end of the day, there's nothing that can be done externally that can change the condition of that dead corpse. The problem with it is what's on the inside. The heart's quit working, the lungs have quit working, the brain has quit working. It, it's deadness began inwardly and manifests outwardly, and so nothing you can do externally can change the dead condition of that person. You know the same thing's true of a lost person. You can paint up the outside, you can dress up the outside, you can go to church, you, you can do, I mean listen, there was a time when most funerals that happened happened in churches, but it didn't raise nobody from the dead. You can go to church, you can be around those things, but the problem is what's inside. You lack the capacity to have a relationship with God because you are spiritually dead. And that's evidence how? It's evidence in the way a person lives their life. They're dead in what? In trespasses and sins. Everything they do is a trespass against God. Now somebody's going to say, wait a minute preacher, you're being awful rough on me. I mean, I think I'm a pretty good person. I'm not arguing with you. By the world's standards, you may be a very good person. But the problem is not your goodness, it is your deadness. Whatever good you may do, you can only do it in selfish motivation because it makes you feel better, because it gives you better standing in society, because it gratifies you, because it helps you sleep at night. You lack the capacity to do anything for God. Now here's the good news. God hasn't asked you to do anything for Him. He's done everything for you. So a lost person is dead. They can't rectify that. They can't change that. Now somebody's going to say, well now wait a minute preacher, you say that I'm dead. But in fact, I determine the way that I live. I have self-governance. I have self-autonomy. I can live any way that I want to. How is that not life? Well, the Bible explains. Look at verse 2. Not only are we dead, but we are dictated to. It says, Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children Of disobedience. I want to be very clear with what I'm about to say here. Uh, Modern sociologists would suggest that when mankind behaves a certain way, he's just dancing to his DNA; that he can't help it. That's a lot of what's behind this whole movement to relabel every criminality and every depravity as a sickness. It's not that person's fault; they're just doing what their DNA tells them to do. I don't believe that. I believe we have free will and free choice. I believe we choose how to live. But I also believe that lacking the capacity to have a relationship with God. We only have one choice left to us and that's to live according to the course of this world. I used to give this a little illustration. We used to have East Town Mall. Uh, Remember that? Before it was just Amazon and you're supposed to sit home, wear a mask, click and order it and they'd bring it to you. We used to have a a, a mall over at East Town Mall and uh, uh, if you drive by there, it's just a great cavern. Amen. It's indicative of what's happening, I think, to our country. But I remember whenever I was growing up, uh Easttown Mall, was that wasn't a big thing, but it was a thing. They just, by, by the way, changed it to Knoxville Center Mall. Isn't it great how much safer that made it? And they changed the name. And uh, I remember you would go, and if you went into the movie theater entrance over there, uh, there was always a, a collection of people, teenagers, that would hang out outside of the movie theater. And they were the nonconformists of society. You'd see them, they'd be decked out in dark clothes and, and, and start makeup and, and, and all kinds of things and, and they'd have the, the piercings, they'd have this, they'd have that. They were the non-conformists of society and they wanted everyone to know it. So much so that they'd hang out there so people would have to walk by and see them and shudder in fear and tremble at their nonconformity. Uh, you know, the fact is nobody was paying attention to them. They was trying to get in Sears by a vacuum cleaner. Amen. <laughs> they, they didn't care. But an interesting thing I noted was this. For all of their lack of conformity, every single one of them was always dressed exactly like the rest. Now here they are making a, a, a good-hearted attempt, a sincere try at nonconformity. Not going to let the man keep me down. And yet they have to fit in with those around them. See, that in many ways is symbolic of the condition of a lost person. Whatever autonomy a lost person claims, they say, well, I do my thing, I live my own way, I make my own choices. And yet their choices always seem to be in lockstep with what is considered appropriate in the world around them. Why is that? Because a lost person has no capacity to do anything really radical. You know what is truly and genuinely radical? It's to live a life not to the depravity of flesh, but to the glory of God. They don't have the capacity to do that. So what do they do? They walk according to the course of this world. They say, I'm walking to my own beat, to the beat of my own drum. But they're walking on the same course as everyone else. And who is it that dictates that course? It says, according to the prince of the power of the air. Now that's a Bible title for the devil himself. He's governing the world. Now, that doesn't mean that every lost person, that they have something satanic about their spirit or their attitude, but what it does mean is they claim that they're living their life this way, but in fact, they're a puppet on strings that are being danced around by the devil and his world system. He says this, The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. In other words, they have no ability to really make an independent decision in their life. They can only continue to go down this now somebody's going to say, when i preacher, some people live that way. Some people live in a moral way. What about those people that live in a moral way? I mean, the atheist says you can be good without God. Is that true? Well, it depends on how you define goodness. You remember there was a man that came to the Lord Jesus one time and, and he said, Master, we know that thou art good and comest from God. And the Lord Jesus answered him back and said, Why callest me thou good? There is none good but God. You see, that man had a different definition of goodness than the Bible has. His definition of goodness was relative goodness. And a lot of people feel like they have relative goodness. Well, I'm a pretty good person relative to other people. But you're missing the point. You're not going to be judged relative to the people around you. You're going to be judged relative to God's holiness. And relative to His holiness, there is none good. No, not one so he said, you know, well, I'm a pretty good person. And you'd say, well, preacher, what about these people that live moral lives? Well, look what it says in verse 3. Among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. So three things. We're dead, we are dictated to, but then we are driven by some things. When a person is lost before they've received Christ, They can only be driven by inward passions that enslave them. Notice what he says here, among whom also we all had our conversation. We've been talking about in Sunday school, a lot of people in trying to explain that verse have said, I think something that's incorrect and that can lead to error. They've said that the word conversation when the King James Bible was translated didn't mean conversation like talking, but rather it meant your lifestyle. I don't believe that's true. The word conversation has always meant conversation. Rather, Paul is using that word figuratively. Now, what does that teach us? Well, the word conversation. What is a conversation? We're having a conversation right now. Well, a a monologue. Somebody say amen. We're having a conversation. I'm conversing with you. What am I doing? I'm taking the thoughts that live inwardly and I'm expressing them outwardly. These thoughts that live inwardly, you would know nothing about if I did not speak them. Hey, good life hack. Some of those thoughts... Nobody would know nothing about if you didn't go speak in them. Amen? But they live. They're alive inwardly. And I communicate them. I express them by speaking them into words. Now he says this, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lusts of our flesh. He's using that word symbolically to express how that our life does the same thing that our lips do. So a person may say, I am a moral person. A person may say, this is the modern language. I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. But in fact, the way a man lives expresses the life or lack thereof that is inside of him. The same way that my words express what's inwardly, my life expresses what's inwardly. Well, what's inwardly? Well, we notice a few things. One, he he says, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. This is defined in modern nomenclature by this idea, if it feels good, do it. All of society, in fact, is judged off the basis of what feels good, what satisfies self and satisfies flesh. And we live in a world that is dictated by what is pleasurable unto it. And so very often the moral things that a lost man does are determined by what makes him feel good in his life. Probably one of the most moral things a lost man could do would be good to his family be good to his spouse, be good to his kids, work hard, provide living for them. But a lost person doesn't do that because that's his duty given from God. He doesn't do it because he feels it glorifies God and honors God. He does it for this simple reason. His family gives him pleasure. He enjoys the love of his children. He enjoys the company of his wife. He enjoys the stability of his home. Now that's one example. I could give you a hundred more. But at the end of the day, even moral things that a lost man does are driven by the lust of the flesh. Now you say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher. Are you saying a lost man has no conscience? No, lost people do have conscience. In fact, all of us as human beings have conscience. The only way we don't is if we've seared our conscience. In fact, so uh, discredited and so ignored it and so set it aside that it doesn't matter to us, but the average lost person isn't that way. The Bible says, and of the mind. That's talking about your thought life. In other words, there's times that they do it out of gratification. There's other times that lost people are moral because of guilt. Helps them sleep at night. Helps them feel like a good person. Helps them feel as though they are righteous in some way, and so they will do it. But what are they doing? Look what he says in the next verse, or next phrase, and we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You know, the Bible talks about the wrath of God. And it talks about spiritually that the judicial wrath of God abides on the lost person. That a person that has never accepted Christ, the wrath of God, it's like it's hanging over Him at all times. It abides over top of Him. And so no matter where He runs, no matter what He does, He's still living under the shadow of God's wrath. Why is that? Because there's been no change in His nature. You see, God's problem with you, again, is not that you're immoral, it's that you're dead in trespasses and sins. Whatever you do within the parameters of that deadness, it doesn't fix that one fundamental problem, which is that your sin problem, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. So it really doesn't matter. And I listen, I'm for people being moral. I'm certainly more for them being moral than immoral, amen? But that morality is not going to save them. You can try your hardest. You can try your best. You can make all the promises. You can give all the money. You can get baptized a hundred times. It won't change anything because your problem is not a lack of any of those things. It is a lack of life within you. Now somebody's going to say, well, preacher, that's, that's terrible. What are we going to do about it? Well, here's the truth. You can't do anything about it. You can't save you. You can't change you. You can try. We're getting ready to come into a new year. You'll make a hundred promises. You'll turn over a hundred leaves and it'll lead to the same old deadness in the first place. Hey, those leaves on the ground you pick up and turn over, turn it over a million times. It's still going to be a dead leaf. It ain't going to change anything. What can change anything? Well, look at verse 4. But God. See, you can't change you, but God can. Mankind in their lost dead condition could not redeem themselves or reform themselves or transform themselves, but God indeed could. Notice, we see not only here a dead condition, but a divine intervention. Here's man in his lostness. He's helpless. He can't change him. He has tried. He's tried to be righteous. He's tried to be moral. He's tried to be upright, but all to no avail because it is not within him to be any of those things. His nature is wrong. But Then here comes God and God says, I can change His nature and transform Him into something different. We see here the person of divine intervention. Who is He? Who is this God? But God who is rich in mercy. He is a merciful God. I know that, listen, some angry uh, atheist has told you that God hates you, but your Bible never told you God hates you. You ought to ask God what His Word is on it. Amen? We get into enough trouble listening to other people's opinions about other people's opinions. I know some hate-filled, angry atheist with a chip on his shoulder done told you God hates you, but that's not what your Bible says. Your Bible says God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And what we find when we read the Word of God is a merciful God. I explained this a little bit in Sunday school today. Some people will see a, a disconsolate thing there. They'll say, well, there's times in the Bible when God acts in wrath. Yes, but His wrath is never at the expense of His mercy. What I mean by that, let me give you one example. In the Old Testament, the Bible tells us about the Assyrians coming and, 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 and uh, marching against Jerusalem and how that in one night the angel of the Lord came out and slew 185,000 Assyrians. People would say, what a wrathful God, what a terrible God, what a severe God. I wonder how the people inside Jerusalem felt about that. You reckon they felt he was wrathful or you reckon they felt he was merciful? You see, because of man's disobedience to God and because of the sin problem of this world, due to man's disobedience, not due to God's flaw in His design, but due to man's self-will, there are times when His mercy must compete with His wrath. But God in His heart and in His soul, you know what He wants to do? He wants to have mercy. And there's no greater example of that than the cross of Calvary. But God, who is rich in mercy, you say, preacher, He's rich in mercy for the elect. No, He's richer than that. He's rich in mercy for everybody that will come unto Him. He'll in no wise cast them out. What did He do for His great love wherewith He loved us? And here we're going to let the Bible define itself. We could define love in a number of different ways, but how does the Bible define love? What does the love of God look like? Well, the book of Romans chapter number 5 uh, tells us, "says but God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, in other words, if we want to know what the great love is wherewith He loved us, we can look to Calvary. He expressed that love for us when He came, was made sin in our place, died on the cross of Calvary for us. He paid your sin debt. You couldn't pay that sin debt. If you died and went to hell, you'd be there eternally. You'd be plucked out for just a brief respite and cast into the lake of fire and there burned for all of time eternal. You could never pay for your sins. Not after a million years or a billion years or a trillion years. But Christ went to the cross of Calvary and He extinguished the wrath of God. He was made sin for you. His righteousness overcame God's wrath. And He was able to say, it is finished. He loves you. How do we know He loves you? Because He gave of Himself for you. He went to the cross of Calvary and suffered immeasurable punishment beyond what's physical, beyond what's emotional. He spiritually uh, experienced the forsaking of His own Heavenly Father so that you never would have to be forsaken, so that you could know God personally and intimately and powerfully so that you could be born again. He's the person of this divine intervention. What did He do? Even when we were dead in sins... I said this morning in Sunday school, a dead person only contributes through its diminishing. Say, so what do you mean, preacher? Well, nowadays we bury them in, in, in vaults and tombs and all kinds of things, but typically throughout human history, a body would be buried maybe in a corpse or, or maybe not in a corpse, maybe in a box or something of that sort. Pretty soon decomposition would take place. And the only benefit from a dead person or from the death of that person would be as their body broke down and fed whatever life was in the ground. It was only through the diminishing of that corpse that any benefit or, or product was made. Why? Because in its dead condition, it couldn't add anything. It could only be as it went away. (laughs) I might just preach this. It could only be as it went away that life could grow. You know the problem in your dead condition? If you stay in that dead condition, nothing's ever going to grow from your life. It is only when you take that dead condition, that dead man, put him on the cross there with Jesus. Let him be crucified. Let, 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 him, let him be reckoned as dead and trespasses in trespasses and sin. View what Christ did on Calvary as him carrying the dead condition you had away and burying it in your place. Only when that diminishes can you enjoy the new life in Christ Jesus. We were dead in sins. There was nothing beneficial about us. There was nothing redeemable about us. Only to another dead person would a dead person have any impressive qualities. There was nothing to God that was impressive about us. But you know what? Because of His great mercy, because of His great love, because of Himself, because He loved us in mercy and in grace, He quickened us together with Christ. And then, just so you don't miss it, He says, by grace you are saved. None of this had anything to do with the lost person or the dead person doing anything to assist God in His redemptive work didn't have anything to do with the dead person making promises or turning over new leaves or joining a church or getting baptized. None of that factored into anything. It was all done by grace. What is grace? It's God's riches at Christ's expense. It's God being good to you because He's good, not because you're good. He did it because of His goodness. We see the person of divine intervention. We see the privilege of it. Look what he says in verse 6. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You say, where's the lost person after he gets born again? Spiritually, in the eyes of God, he's seated in heaven with Christ Jesus. This denotes the position of Christ. And here's what it's saying. When He views you, He views you as Christ. The Bible word for this is justification. Uh, whenever we think of that idea being justified or justification. If you've ever worked with computers, with word processors, there's three little buttons or four little buttons uh, that are up at the top and they've got little lines on them. And, and on one of them, all the lines start at the left side of the page. And on another one, all the lines start on the right side of the page. On another one, they all start kind of in the middle. And then there's one. I like this one. It's called justified all. And all the way around it, the lines stretch all the way to the margins. What's it about? It's about where you're going to set your text next what's it going to line up with does it line up correctly with what you're trying to present the bible says we've been justified in Christ Jesus what does that mean it means we've been put lined up with the standard of his holiness not because we are holy but because he looks at us and chooses to see Jesus Christ instead just as he became our sin we became His righteousness. That's what the book of 2 Corinthians says. For God hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Now all of a sudden, it's not about what I do. It's not about what I've done. It's about who He is and what He has done for me. I've been justified through Him. We see the privilege of it. Why did He do that? That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus, we then become a vehicle or vessel for the manifestation of the grace of God. So that people can look at our lives and say, boy, ain't God good. He'd save an old sinner like that. He must be a good God. I see the privilege of it, but then I see not only the uh, privilege of it, I see the uh, premise of it. He says this, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You can almost hear the Holy Spirit saying, you getting it yet? He just piles statement upon statement. For by grace you're saved. That'd be enough. But then he says, through faith, lest you wonder whether it's through your good works or through trusting in the finished work of Christ that what He did was enough for you. He wants you to know it's through faith. And then somebody might say, well, my faith is a good work. He says, no, 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 no. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Somebody will say, well, I've earned this gift. (laughs) But he says, no, no, no. It's the gift of God. It's not the gift because of you. It's the gift of God. Oh, how this bankrupts man's excuses and man's complexes. To say, oh, God couldn't save me. I'm not good enough. God said, I've never asked you to be good. I didn't die for you because you're good. I died for you because you're dead. You say, well, I don't think I can keep all the promises that I think I need to make to God. No, you probably can't. That's why it's good. It's not based on your promise. It's based on His promise. Somebody will say, well, preacher, I don't know if I could give enough money or I don't know if I could uh, do enough good works. Well, that's why you don't have to do any of those things. You just place your faith in Him. It's by faith. It's through faith. You are without excuse this morning. Uh, Salvation is within the reach of every single human being. You are not without an opportunity to accept Him. The premise is not your good works. By the way, that's why I know I can't lose it. I didn't do anything to earn it. Uh, how could a just God take it from me for not doing enough when I, He gave it to me when I hadn't done nothing? I didn't secure it. I didn't save myself. I didn't do any of these things. I'll tell you what happened to me. I was a 10 year old boy raised in church raised under the gospel and none of that saved me. But at 10 years old the Holy Ghost of God made real to me that I was on my way to hell. And I bowed as a 10 year old boy. I didn't have nothing to give God. I didn't have nothing to offer God. I didn't have nothing to pay God. I mean I was just a little broken child that had no hope, that had no help. I couldn't do nothing for God. I couldn't bring nothing to Him. But I called and said, Lord, I'm lost. Please forgive me and save me. And he saved me. Now why would He do that for a 10-year-old boy? Same reason He'd do it for a 50-year-old man. Same reason He'd do it for a 21-year-old young lady. Same reason He'd do it for an 80-year-old man. Because it's never been about you and what you have done. It's always been about Him and what He has done. The premise of it is that of grace. But then I see not only a condition and intervention. I want you to notice there's a transformation. Look at verse 10. He says this, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I see in this that when a person gets born again, there's three new things in their life. One, there is a new creation. The Bible says, uh, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. By the way, let me just back up. I misquoted that. Actually, what it says is, now, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Why does that matter? Because some people get the idea that you get saved and God don't change your life until one day when you get a glorified body. It's not what the Bible says. It says now. When God saves a man, He becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus. It says old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Your life will change if you receive Christ. Now somebody will say, well, preacher, I've seen people get backslid. Oh, believe me, I'm a Baptist pastor. I've seen people get backslid. Uh, listen, I mean, I, sometimes I wonder if they didn't make it an Olympic sport and nobody told me, Amen. My people are training. (laughs) Listen, I understand. I understand people get backslid. But you know what you find? You find that though they may try to go back to those old ways, those old ways, they never seem to find them. In other words, they can go back and try to live in sin, but it don't satisfy them the way it used to. Uh, They can go back and try to find pleasure in those things, but there's no pleasure anymore. Sure, they can go backwards, but what they'll find is even when they go backwards, it's a new thing. It's not like it used to be. Old things are passed away. Behold all things. The good things, the bad things, every element of life, it is new. I remember being impressed when I got saved at how different life seemed. Now, I want to remind you, I was a 10 year old boy. I mean, I wasn't. It's, it's not like I was running drugs up and down the East Coast, right? I didn't start that till a few years ago. My life was not externally transformed, right? but I remember looking around and just thinking how different it was. Here's the things I remember thinking. I'd do things like I'd do my homework and I'd think, you know, I don't mind doing this, it pleases God. Now, that didn't last very long, but I, but I remember thinking, and everything I'd do wasn't just about pleasing mom and dad, it wasn't just about keeping peace in the home, it wasn't just about getting privileges, toys, things like that. Now all of a sudden there was this new consideration, and that consideration was, what does God think about what I'm doing? You see, if you don't have that, you don't have new life. If it doesn't matter to you what God thinks about your life, if that's not a, a factor, that's because of that deadness that's within you. Now, I'm not saying you always listen to that. I'm not saying you always make the right choices. But I'm saying when I got born again, the whole world was new before me. And all of a the sudden there was a new way of looking at life around me. We are a new creature. In fact, what are we? We are His workmanship. Not our workmanship. We're His workmanship. He has created us a new creature, and now what is He doing? He is building our life. Paul used this language in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He said, now, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus the Lord. Uh, That means this, if you try to skip ahead of Calvary and just start becoming a Christian, you ain't got nothing to build on. You ain't got nothing to build on. You you know why lost people are are prohibited in the Bible from taking the Lord's Supper? It's not because God is jealous over the the grape juice and the crackers. It's because they don't know what they're celebrating. They can can have the pageantry of it, right? But they can't understand the passion of it. Why? They've never experienced it. They can try, but there's only one foundation upon which to build anything in your life. You go ahead, listen, build your sandcastles, but you'll find that every wave comes along is just going to sweep them away. Your life won't make any lasting change until you give it to Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. It says no other foundation other than Jesus Christ. And then Paul would go on to say that God is a master builder and that He is building upon these things a life. We are permitting Him to either build things for His glory or build things for our gratification. We are investing in that building of our life in one way or the other. In other words, God has a desire. He don't just save you and then say, alright, I'll see you when you get to heaven. He saves you and then becomes an intimate part of your life in, in changing your life, building your life. Now, somebody will say, well, preacher, my, my relationship with God is not where it needs to be. Well, that's not because He doesn't want it to be. You may have not, not allowed Him to do that, but it's not because He's uninterested. You have to allow Him to have His will and way in your life if you want to see your life built up for His glory. That all begins with what? That foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the foundation stone. If you don't have Him, you don't have anything. You can keep trying to be a good person. You can keep trying to fake it till you make it. But until you get Him, nothing is going to change about your life. I see that there's a new creature. Then I see there's a new cause. It says, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now here's the difference. Here's what we want. We want to be created unto good works to get into Christ Jesus. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we're created in Christ Jesus where it's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You can't get the cart before the ox. If you don't have Him, whatever good works you have, they go back, they revert back to that verse 2 and verse 3. You're just doing what gratifies you, what pleases you, what impresses other people. You're not doing it because it pleases God, but only because it helps you. But once a person gets born again, then of course good works is what God desires for them. For them to live in righteousness and obedience to God. They've been given a new cause. And the reason it is a new cause is because now those good works manifest the work of God in their life. In other words, as Paul would say, or as Peter would say later on, talking to Hebrew believers, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which art in heaven. Now these good works matter because people look at it and say, boy, that's what God can do with a life that's given unto Him. There is a new cause, but then I see there's a new course. He says, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I want to tell you something a little interesting. Uh, and I don't know if I can really communicate this, this, this concept to you appropriately. I hope I can. I'll trust the Holy Ghost too. When a person's lost, he thinks he's the master of his own life. He thinks he does what he wants to do. But that's actually not true. You know, you remember the Lord Jesus uh, told His disciples, says you you cannot serve two masters. You'll either serve God or serve mammon. He didn't say you can't serve no masters. It was a given you can't serve no masters. He didn't say your option is just to serve you. He said you're going to serve a master. So the question is not am I going to serve a master? The question is which master do I want to serve? So a lost person will say, well, nobody runs me. But that's not true. You can look at the fact that their life is in lockstep with this world's values and this world's uh, 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 concepts and this world's principles and see that this world is dictating where they go. But when a person gets saved, they for the first time in their life have actual choice. You remember the Lord Jesus said, if the Son hath made you free, you're free indeed. So a lost person can only and ever do that which pleases the world and pleases self. He can't do anything contrary to that. He is not free. He is in bondage. When a person gets saved, now he has true choice. What's his choice? I can live a life that pleases God or I can live a life that pleases self and pleases the world. So for the first time, he has real freedom, real liberty, real choice in his life. But can I clue you in on something? God didn't give you that liberty. It's liberty. It's not license. God didn't give you that liberty to make the wrong choice with. That's not the purpose of liberty. Liberty's not there so that we can live in depravity. Liberty's there so that we can, in choice and in love and in volition, live for the glory of God. So here's what happened. You didn't lose a master. You gained a much better master whenever you got born again. You didn't become masterless. You didn't become listless. But rather you got a new master. This master, you say, what kind of master is he? The kind of master that died for his slaves. (laughs) <laughs> the kind of master you remember in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 20 if a Hebrew slave wanted to commit himself uh, for the rest of his life unto his master he could uh, that, that his master could take him to the marketplace and and there was sort of a, a procedure they could go through a, a ceremony they could go through where he would stand up and that that servant would say, "I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, I will not go out free forever. I want to no longer just be a hired slave, I want to be a bond slave to this master because he's a good master." And then they would take that man, they'd put his ear against a the door post, they'd take an awl and pierce through that. That way for the rest of his life, he would never forget, and no one else would ever forget, that he was not a free man, he was a bond slave to his master. Can I tell you how good your master is? Not only does he expect you to do that, but he himself went and did that to pledge himself to you as well. You remember what Paul said about his own suffering? He said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> here's, what, here's what God did. He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. He put His own ear up against the doorpost, shed His own blood and said, I pledge Myself to You forever. So what do I do, preacher? You do the same thing. You do the same thing. We've been given, we're not without a Master, we're not anarchists, uh, but rather uh, we have bowed our knee to the Lord of glory and He has now given us a new course to walk. You say, preacher, are we free to do whatever we want? Well, you can live any way you want you'll find it empty and hollow and miserable. Or you can choose to walk according to the course that He has laid for you. You know what you'll find? It's a good course. It's a better course. (laughs) It's it's a glorious course. It's a more blessed course. It ain't like that course you've been walking that leads only to heartache and emptiness and, and misery. But it's a course that's going to change your life forever. Where does it begin? It begins with Jesus Christ. He's the author and finisher of our course. He's the author and finisher of this race that's set before us. If you've not met Him, you can't start that race. If you've not met Him, you don't have a foundation to build on. You're still in the deadness of your sins, but i got good news in the midst of your deadness. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, He'll quicken you together with Jesus Christ and give you new life in Him. Until that happens, nothing's going to change. You can make all the promises to yourself, to your loved ones, uh, to God in heaven. It ain't going to change anything you don't have the ability to change anything. But come to Jesus and He'll change everything. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. I want you to listen carefully. Uh, a note doesn't have to be played for you to make a move towards the Lord. You don't have to hear a note played. Nobody has to sing anything. Right now, you have a choice to make in your life. You've heard the truth of the gospel. You've heard what Christ has done for you. You've heard that the things you've been trusting in, looking to, living in, hold no hope for you. And now the only one that can make a choice about your life is you. I wonder if there'd be somebody that'd say, Brother Toby, nobody's looking around but me. Every head bowed, every eye closed. But I wonder if there'd be somebody that'd say, Brother Toby, you exactly described me. I, I, I know there's no life in me. I know there's no there's no relationship with God that I have. I am a dead person spiritually, and I don't want to be. I believe I'm lost and I don't want to be. Would you slip your hand up right where you're at? I won't I won't say your name. I won't embarrass you. I won't single you out. But you'd say, Brother Toby, that's me. I just want to pray for you. Brother Toby, I believe I'm lost. I don't want to be. I know that I can't change me, and I'm ready to quit trying. I'm ready to let God do what I can't do. Slip your hand up and let me pray for you. Is there anyone all over the room? All over the room. Is there anyone? Would there be someone that would say, Brother Toby, uh, I, I, I know that I'm saved, but I see loved ones that are doing exactly what you described. They think they're going to get there because they are born in a Christian home or they think they're going to get there because they was raised in church. They think they're going to get there because they've been baptized. I've seen them live in constant discouragement over the fact that they can't change their lives. And I just so deeply want God to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. I'm burdened for a loved one that I believe is lost. Would you slip your hand up and let me help you pray? All over this room, hands went up. Melissa's going to play. The altar's open. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus in Christ's name.